Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Rotary-Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who didn't write any of Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, I guess this is a, is a plagiarism joke. Uh, <laughs> it is. I am, I am Edward de Vere, the fifth Earl of Oxford, and if you follow my puzzle clues on my tombstone... <laughs> Uh, you will find out. You'll f- discover I am... William Shakespeare flattened like a pancake on the back of the, <laughs> the on the Constitution. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-Criterion film over there every month. Uh, Our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch, usually from a list I put together, but sometimes from a list the supporters put together. Sometimes Uh, I help. And sometimes Very rarely. Uh, But sometimes Adam's in a bind and he sends me a message and say, Pat, which of these should we watch? And I choose the best option, I promise. Yes. Pat is a very busy person uh, with actual real-life duties that I do not have, such as taking care of a family. I mean, they and, basically take care of themselves, frankly. And a professional career. <laughs> <laughs> the, the children, you know. I mean, they're kind of like, uh, yeah. it's, you know, it's, they're, it's they're most fine. of the maintenance is automatic at this point. Because of that, I do. I do a lot of the work on the on the uh, podcast and uh, that Pat just doesn't have the time for, uh, which is good. Uh, one of us should have a real job. If a supporter does uh, does put together a list for us, we usually try to get them on air because uh, it's always fun to talk to people about a movie that they love, uh, and we've done that quite a few times. Uh, people love movies. Our as most it recent turns out people do love movies. Yeah. Our most recent example of that was our January bonus episode where we actually had two supporters on to talk about an Ozu film, uh, which was really fun. Uh, that was a that yeah, was a fun we, ride. That was really enjoyable. I really liked that episode. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. And then our February our February bonus episode, we also had a guest on, but it wasn't it wasn't for a movie that guest suggested. It was because I, I made that list and knew that Jonathan Hape really loved that movie, so I asked him to be right, on right. the episode. Uh, when we watched Joe versus the volcano, I mean, if you but, asked him to make a list, there was not a Joe versus the volcano un- would have been unlikely on that, that list. he would yeah. not. Like it seems likely he would put that on the list. So, yeah. Uh, but other than that, I come up with the I come up with the list, and occasionally I ask Pat to help me narrow the selection or to reject an idea outright. <laughs> if I, I mean, if so I choose. feel like you come to me to reject ideas because you know they're they're bad and you just want somebody to tell yeah. you they're not a good idea basically basically that's that's more or less how it works uh unless it's like the list that we well, put together yeah, this, this week not that one yeah. or for march where it was hey we have all of these options that surprisingly are available to us which one should we actually right, pursue right. so that the the list doesn't have so many so many things on it that nothing wins our, our list now has uh, nine options every time it's uh, a yeah. we've created a, 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 it's not a, a good. real bad paradigm here where they can never win right 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 anyway that's all at the one dollar mark you get access to that vote you get access to the new episode you get access to all the old episodes there's over 65 over there right now 
and we have a lot of fun with non-Criterion films, and occasionally films that, after we did the episode, ended up in the Criterion. I mean, collection. is there another one uh, other than Failsafe at this point? No, nah, it's it's only Failsafe right now. But like that Ozu film, yeah, that's true. That that's Criterion true. Criterion Collection by the end of the year, to be honest. I wouldn't be uh, also surprised if um, what was the um, the documentary um, that I really liked uh, uh, about America. <laughs> God's people or God's country. Yeah, God's rather, country could find Mala its way into, into the yeah. Criterion Collection. Did well, it's yeah. I, that's, they, they that's do not an ever move set, things so. from Eclipse to Criterion. They don't ever do that, or uh, I don't know. I, can't I don't know think enough of an about example. how Criterion works. It wouldn't surprise so. me. It wouldn't surprise me if it has happened, but I can't think Maybe of an example like in, the, in the in the uh, Ultra HD release. They're like, no, oh, let's make this a Criterion. Yeah. Why not? I mean, we're we're by no means Criterion experts. No, that's not part at all. I don't know anything. Right? We're just. We're just, We're just exploring it. Yeah. So, uh, hence the title, Lost in Criterion. Hey. I mean, we're not even doing uh, a good job anyway. of exploring because we are lost. We are lost. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, a little above that $1 mark at $5 uh, for folks who can afford it and want to help us keep going, help us pay these bills, uh, want to... Uh, <laughs> help it make it rain, you know, like... Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, whatever. Keep us... Keep... Keep us away from one more excuse for stopping. Uh, it's not a financial burden right now. So thank you so much to our $5 supporters. We love to thank them on air. Uh, thank you to Eric Coronado, to Chris Otto, to Andrew Jarrett, and Stephen Goldmeyer, thank our you, current everybody. $5 supporters. Not a financial a bit burden. Above only that. a psychological one as they slowly wear us Yes, yes, dust. indeed. Indeed. A little above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I got that printed up on a postcard once a month and mail it off with a little personalized thank you note. I'd also like to thank those people on air. So thank you so much to Nina Bojnak, Tracy McGrath, Patrick Yako, Adam Speakerman, and Jason Westhaver, our $10 and above supporters. Thank you. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there. You can see the past postcards. You can buy them if you like as postcards, as greeting cards, as stickers, as magnets, uh, act fast before I file a copyright claim against my own art. <laughs> yes, Pat, stop plagiarizing yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna file some DMCA requests on my on my own on my own work. Thank you uh, so much to everybody who has purchased anything on Redbubble. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who supports us on Patreon, and thank you to you for listening. Yes, thank you, everyone. Uh, Pat, this week we were talking about our very first Charlie Chaplin film proper. Uh, there is a little caveat on that. What? Uh, so we're talking about Modern Times uh, this week from 1936. Uh, it is the first Criterion spine-numbered release of a Charlie Chaplin film. However, a few years ago, and you already mentioned Louis Malle in uh, in talking about our uh, Patreon Uh because we did God's Country Oh, that's bonus. right. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. Many, many years ago, when we watched, our, uh, what was it, Au Revoir Les Infants at Spine 330, I think, Spine 330. Uh, uh, much like one of the bonus features in on, on this release, uh, a traveling film set up comes to the characters of Au Revoir Les Infants and shows them uh, The Immigrant from 1917, the Charlie Chaplin short. And on the Criterion release, The Immigrant in its totality is 
a bonus feature on that disc. Right. So we did watch The Immigrant when we watched Louis Malle's Au revoir les enfants, Espagne, 3.30, which would have been four or five years ago? I don't, yeah, there I remember a long time yeah. ago. Uh, love Malle. Love, that was part of a uh, Malle box set, uh, three Malle films in a row, and all of them were great. Uh, but Au revoir les enfants was pinnacle of the set. Uh, so we did watch The Immigrant, and now we have our first proper Charlie Chaplin release with Modern Times. Why do you uh, think we this joked... is so late into the Criterion Collection? I... Is it just a rights issue? Because certainly they must so have it's probably this earlier, right? It's probably a rights issue, though it does seem like they... There were some copyright issues with uh, his very earliest work that RKO ended up owning the silent shorts and re-releasing them with new music uh, that... Chaplin got no cut of whatsoever and was a bit a bit pissed off about. Oh, that's a little understandable, um, yeah. 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 Actually, we, uh, we've talked a lot about copyright infringement already just because uh, Internet Archive's impending closure is on our minds, but uh, it, it plays a lot into this movie and Charlie Chaplin, too, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, so we've got that with the RKO release. Um and the Criterion Collection maybe maybe could have gone that route, and, and they certainly had some other RKO stuff we've already seen, right? Um, I don't know why a proper Chaplin release is so late. This does sort of open the floodgates, and in uh, 20 spine numbers, or 10 spine numbers, 20 weeks from now, uh, because of the way we do this, we will watch our next Chaplin film. Uh, Which is? The Great Dictator okay. at 565. Uh, and then at 6.15, we have The Gold Rust. And at 6.52, we have Monsieur Verdoux, one of his later films from 1947. And at 6.80, we have City Lights, the movie he made directly before this one. Right, which is the and, one I, uh, I'm, 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 I have never seen it, yeah. but I am excited to watch it. Yeah, and we actually we have a couple, two or three more even after that. Uh, but this is the first, the first one. Uh, the other way copyright infringement plays into this conversation today is that uh it may be long enough ago that i wouldn't fault you for not remembering anything about it. i mean but let's be clear way back like I yeah way back at spine one, 160 we watched a movie by Rene claire called anus la liberté uh-huh. which was an early favorite of ours it was a french musical comedy from 1931 uh the storyline of which was that a couple of prisoners uh, working on an assembly line, escape, and get separated. And one of them ends up running a phonograph factory. And the other oh, right. sort of okay. threatens threatens his whole, whole deal, but they come together and be friends. And then they fully automate the phonograph fa- factory and give it to the workers. Yes, it, I remember it, that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really great film. Uh with really, really fun themes for us. Uh, the production company of Anus de Liberté sued Charlie Chaplin over copyright plagiarism claims, copyright infringement for modern times. They felt they felt some of the some of the stuff that happens in modern times is a little too close to Anus de Liberté. And certainly there are similar themes, uh, though modern times is by no means as 
as hardline socialist as a new right, right, right. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, and then by that, by those standards, I would assume that like we would have to then sue the the, the I Love Lucy <laughs> show. I don't. Yeah. Well, yes, yes. That is sort of sort of more what they're getting at are are the uh, the similarities in the uh, structural jokes uh, about the assembly lines and. Uh, and the thematic theme, thematic theme. What a, what a, what <laughs> I a like word. tired Adam. Uh, He's fun. Yeah. And the theme of uh, you know one of the things Chaplin says about this movie is that it it stems from his realization that modernization, uh, automation, technological innovation within industry could be heaven for workers. Uh, could be a godsend, uh, but in the hands of capital would just produce hell. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and like, and, it's it's a it's a is a valid observation that like seems like he's already late to the game, but whatever, it's fine. Glad yes, he figured yes. it out. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it uh, <laughs> that is certainly a conversation we had around Anusa Liberté as well, because Anusa Liberté ends with that heaven on earth of automation the uh, the workers own the company and they spend they spend the rest of their days fishing and listening to the phonograph machines that they're now automated machine they're now automated factory that they own collectively is still producing and selling so uh yeah and Anusa Liberty came out in 1931 same year as City Lights after City Lights Chaplin traveled Europe, uh, so could have been exposed to it directly, but also Anus Liberty was nominated for an Oscar uh, for production design in 1931. Uh, so Chaplin was probably familiar. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the argument stem. I, for me personally, the argument yeah. against this kind of copyright claim <laughs> doesn't stem from like him not having foreknowledge. Right. It's like. It's not that similar. It's just not that similar. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like I don't think yeah. that's a I don't think we're looking at a valid argument, basically. Obviously it's been long enough that we can't really remember specific gags from a new right, Slo- right. Liberté. But but the copyright claim, the plagiarism claim seems to be based on thematic elements to begin with. Uh so I'm not I'm not sold on it. Uh and I can't <laughs> find our movie our I, our movie plagiarized marks so here we go yeah yeah uh it looks like they settled out of court actually uh and claire was a friend and admirer of chaplin anyway right uh who who actually was was honored that chaplin would rip him off basically uh and was embarrassed by the lawsuit because it was his production company without without his approval so yeah, that that plagiarism lawsuit was wholly the production company, uh, which, which is also our problem on Redbubble, is <laughs> is production company. Right, right, yes, yeah. Artists. Production companies just uh, deciding things are plagiarism, seemingly yeah, apropos yeah. of nothing. Yes, uh, and you know to play into the themes of of our movie here, uh, it is a wholly automated process with no humans involved whatsoever, right, right. which is also the problem for us on Redbubble. That promotion tour of City Lights that had Charlie Chaplin in Europe for 16 months, I think it was, 14 or 16 months, uh, 
is really what inspired Modern Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he saw the results, both economically and politically, of the Great Depression in Europe, uh, much more than he had seen it in the U.S. up to that point. Uh, actually, he talks about how when he got back to the U.S. after that tour, it felt like a foreign country. Uh, and I think part of it is seeing the country with new eyes. Right. Uh, I have to ass- also right. Like I have to kind of assume mm-hmm. that to a certain extent he had just been isolated from it in yes in where you know in Hollywood or whatever in a way that um, yeah he just couldn't be when he was in Europe. Right. Uh, right. I think that's fair. Uh, yeah. So so this is. Modern Times is Chaplin's first movie in his political awakening, uh, uh, which, you know, absolutely makes sense looking at it in that it is uh, politically it's some loose ideas right. that are are hedged in a lot of jokes. Yeah, there has uh, a lot of jokes. I mean, it hits, on, it hits on points. I mean, like, it's just sort of... It's it takes it doesn't take things nearly far enough in every direction, right? Like right, right, right. Yeah. It's sort of about the alienation of one's labor, but like not entirely. Like I don't know. Yeah, the uh, uh, and at the time of release, New Republic review of this movie said that it should actually be four separate movies. Okay. Uh, and even titled them one called The Shop. That's the only one I remember. But as as the the industrial part of this movie called The Shop, and then one called The Night <laughs> The Night Clerk or something like that, and one called uh, The Singing The Singing Waiter uh, was another one. Um, so he said uh, that reviewer separated the movie into sort of four vignettes. Uh, I think we could probably subdivide it into more vignettes if we wanted. I mean, I I'm gonna go out on a limb and say like, there's a weird sort of mathematical problem with uh with uh, Chaplin that you can basically subdivide it infinitely. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Chaplin's Zeno's paradox. Exactly. It's uh, like, well, we only ever ha- get halfway through each bit, so I don't know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so he traveled around Europe and he met with Albert Einstein and he met with. H.G. Wells, and he met with Gandhi in London uh, and had apparently intellectually stimulating conversations with each of them. Uh, Gandhi is apparently, I did not know this about Gandhi, um, but at least as far as the conversation with Chaplin goes, uh, Gandhi is framed as being uh, very much against uh, industrialization, uh, which I think makes sense. Uh, it's just not something I knew about him pri- prior, assuming it's true, I guess. But, um, but in that conversation with Chaplin, uh, Chaplin was arguing that technology has the ability to make everyone's lives better, uh, as long as it is not subsumed under capital. Uh, and Gandhi essentially arguing, it seems that impossible that it wouldn't be subsumed right, under capital right. basically uh which fair point gandhi <laughs> let's look at the last hundred years uh, uh, but yeah um you know what i love about a new celebrity 
as compared to to this. Not that I don't love Modern Times. Modern Times is a great movie, and we'll talk more about it. But what I love about Honest at Liberty is it is a pinnacle example of the hope of pre-World War II science fiction about automation and futurism that all of these technological innovations <coughs> would would be owned by the workers uh, collectively and uh, and make everybody's lives better, uh, where that's dichotomized with something like Metropolis or or modern times here, where if the capitalists still own it, it's just hell. Right, uh, right. I mean, you know, it's it's. I find this very interesting because we're like not to like derail our conversation, but we're going through something like very similar with like large language models now. Uh, yes, being, you know, as as has been dubbed AI, but like this sort of situation where like, of course, this tool that could like make a worker's job easier is is already well on its path to displacing certain workers completely and just making other people right. as a tool to make other people work even harder, right? Yeah. Fewer people to do more jobs for less money instead of the opposite yeah. way as Sonic would like it. Yeah. I talked about this uh, this week. I don't, I forget where, I think it might've been on my Mastodon, not, not on Twitter. Um, but uh, I had a customer come into my new job who said that he ended up at, at my restaurant because he asked ChatGBT for recommendations on cheap places to eat in Columbus. And that's and great. told him it was 12.5 miles. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. No. That's great, except that all ChatGBT is doing right there is Googling it. <laughs> yeah. Aggregating uh, Google search results. Fantastic. Yeah. Good job, Chad. But, but to be fair, given the current state of internet search engines, an aggregator is actually a useful tool. Right. Could be great. Uh, right. Yeah. A thing that actually yeah. does what you want your search engine to actually do. Right. Right. What what Google famously became the best search engine for doing uh, already and now just doesn't do anymore. Um, but it reminded me of a service I worked for in big air quotes around 2006, oh, okay. 2007 called Cha-Cha. I didn't know this, but okay. The idea of cha-cha was, it was gig workers, which is one reason why I put worker in quotes. But the idea of cha-cha was uh, pre-wide adoption of smartphones. Uh, Cha-cha offered a text service where you could text cha-cha. In fact, that number, C-H-A-C-H-A. for you? And they text you back? And it would, it would... It would pay someone to Google it for you, basically. Right. I mean, yes, I figure. Uh, yeah, but but like pennies, like half a penny per answer, basically. Uh, now, Cha Cha had a lot of problems, uh, and one reason I only worked for them for two days, <laughs> and again, work in quotes, it was it was contract labor, you know. Contract. Uh, I don't think I ever got paid. I don't think I answered enough questions to right, to make right. pay worthwhile for anyone, even myself. But, uh, uh, but one of the, one of the problems with Chacha was, uh, it's to make the user experience easier and user interface easier for what they were doing and quicker, it would field every question to whoever was the first available answer. Right. Uh, even if you were in an ongoing conversation. 
So for instance, with, with this guy who came into my work, uh, if you ask Cha-Cha, hey, what's a great cheap place to eat in Columbus? And the it would service that to one answer who would give you the answer of restaurant X or whatever. And then if you responded, oh, awesome, where's that? <laughs> they would have no idea. The next, the next person, the next answer would get your question, awesome, where's that? With no other context. Oh, fantastic. So... So unusable. What you're so, describing is unusable. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely unusable as a service, <laughs> unless you had, unless your question was like, uh, "Hey, who starred in this movie?" Or if you wanted one specific fact, it was great. It was not good for conversation. And this was dealing with real people. It was just real people compartmentalized in a way where none of it made sense. Wow, uh, <laughs> that's a am- yeah. that is amazing. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, that is my experience with Cha Cha. If, if someone if someone wants to challenge my memory of how it worked, please please do. But uh, but yeah, I I spent two days, two non consecutive days answering questions for Cha Cha for a couple of hours each day, and that's all my experience with was. And again, that was twenty years. Well, ago. I assume it doesn't so. exist anymore. But I mean, either way, so oh, you know, the point being that like we see here like what. How automation is employed by right. the capitalist class, right. which is to make more fewer workers work harder for less yeah. pay, rather but than also, the other way it could work. Yeah, but also with things like the large language models that are getting popular right now, it's also not really automation. It's just obfuscating, uh, paying paying very poor people very little money. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I'm, I'm thinking specifically, like, uh, not to get, like, too up in my own yeah. butthole, but, like, U- Ubisoft announced that they were going to, like, you. they had a proprietary large language model that they're going to run uh, to make all the barks for their games ahead of time, and then their the writers <laughs> would just edit them to, like... Oh, man. And they're claiming that they're not going to displace any workers for it, but, like, let's be serious here. Like... I'm making the jerk off motion while I say that. You yeah. know, I mean, like I, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ubisoft famously amazingly good at making decisions that don't bite them in the ass yeah. five days later. But you know, I don't remember who it was, but I ran across something this week where someone said that uh, uh, suggested that uh, ChatGBT or something like it could replace uh, all. Uh, basic programmers, so that they could. Yeah, that that, that was a going thing a advanced, couple of weeks ago, maybe a month yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. The advanced programmers would then clean it up and take it, and and you know, as someone pointed out, as it came to me, well, how do you think you get advanced programmers? <laughs> like, right, and also get... this is a this is a program that that so regularly shits the bed that like the amount of right, time you right. would, like what that one strikes me as the worst possible. It's like computer. Design me a car, and then you have to edit the yeah. resulting car to make sure it doesn't kill people. Like I don't know, like right, right. It seems like more yeah. work than just writing it. You're like designing the car from the first place yourself. Right. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to tie back into the into the movie, what those things really are are like the feeding machine in the factory right, exactly. Sequence, yes, more yeah. than the actual automation of it. It's it's meant to make. It is ostensibly meant to make someone's job easier, uh, but all it really is designed to do is make someone else a lot of money while making your life a little bit more hellish. Right. Uh, Noticeably worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, the idea that <laughs> they can keep working while this machine I know, automatically. I, my favorite them. thing about it is that like it 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 is it's in that like fun little realm of like not really plausible, but like plausible enough. Right. But then it does like what all things like this would do, which is like actually just make your work harder because like he can't even yeah. see the fucking job anymore. Right. He's got this giant thing shoved him. in his face. Like it's like, oh, perfect. Yeah. Exactly as it would be if if designed by a person whose right. job is to extract money out of you and your yes. and, and everybody else you work with. Right. And the idea that uh to extract that extra half hour of labor uh, the company would spend hundreds of millions of dollars buying a fleet of these. <laughs> right, right. It's is, is of, yeah, definitely yeah, something that would happen. More, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent something that would happen in in twenty twenty first century capitalism. I mean, uh, now see the on the flip side, they already figured out how to do it without doing that, right? Like, right at this right, point, right. like working working through your lunch break is just like normative behavior in any office yeah. job and it's email, fucking ridiculous email on smartphones has right. has achieved that for us without without, without a weird feeding machine that shoves bolts yeah. into your mouth if you're not careful yeah. i gotta i love yeah. man i i love the gags in this movie so fucking much i watched this yeah. with my family by the way with my well my kids oh good um i I'm was sure like no we're like doing them. this together they're like and 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 <laughs> dylan Funnily enough, is like he hates all black and white movies just automatically. He's like, ah, oh, shit, it's one of these. Yeah. He didn't say shit. He's a better boy than that. Um, <laughs> he's better behaved than that. But then I was like, no, we're it's good. I promise it'll be funny. You'll laugh. And then they they loved it. They thought this movie was so funny. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. Ah, uh, that's good. To me, there's no I'm higher praise than are. like a 12 year old and a seven year old thought it was the funniest shit on earth. Good. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, <laughs> I do find it interesting that in the opening credits, uh, Traplin's not credited as the tramp. I don't know if it's normal that he would have been credited as the tramp. The tramp is what we call the character, but I don't know how often the credits actually right. name him as right. the tramp. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but in this one, he's credited as a factory worker is the, is the character he's playing, which he is only for the first 20 minutes of the movie, right. really, but... But sure, uh, just you know the. I, it is interesting uh, that Chaplin, even in making what up to his this point is his most pro worker movie, certainly, uh, still defines the character he is playing by his job in the opening sequence of the movie. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I, it's just it's an ideological thread we don't need to pull, but uh, well, but I mean, if you think if you think uh, in terms of like early, relatively early twentieth century socialist and communist, you know, sort of a tangentially related to Marxist thinking, identifying workers as a like a class is pretty right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't, as you said, we don't need to get into it, but like. It's not that far afield as like sort of where people if, were and and thinking about things at the time, if, right? If he was just identified as a worker instead of a factory worker, I might, True, I that's might be good point. more that's willing good point. to to entertain that end of things. I don't think that's. What's I going also on don't here, think. I I also think to a certain extent it's a very good movie, but like to a certain extent, 
he's going off a bit half baked in the sense that like oh yeah this is like absolutely stuff that's basically just popped into his head over the course of the last yeah. year he's not like spent a long this time is, thinking about it you know what i mean this is godard in late 67 exactly this exactly 100 uh, yeah. yes yeah it's it's i've had these ideas and as an artist i feel like i, need I feel to share compared these ideas. to share them with all people yeah yeah, yeah. and and certainly you know uh, his next movie uh the great dictator much much more baked uh with with the critiques it's making right um great dictator much you know overtly anti-fascist but also with a call to universalism that uh in its anti-fascism that is anti-capitalist by its nature right uh but we'll save that for when we watch when we the, watch that movie dictator like at some point in a in the month future. not a month yeah. you know what I mean. uh 20 weeks uh not the six months and his the very opening scene uh the first thing we see are sheep being compared to workers sheep in the pen workers into the factory um and then the tramp or chaplain himself as the one black sheep within this crowd of people i guess uh i don't know if you need to start <laughs> start if you need to start your movie by calling calling all workers sheep. Well, again, but, I think that uh, comes from, I I do believe that comes from being a bit half baked in the sense that like right, right. I don't think the implication was meant to be they are sheep, it's that they are treated yeah. like sheep, right? Like they are herded. Right. They are right. Like they, they are, are not things. given agency in their own actions yes. and stuff. I, I it, right, it's problematic right. just because it's, again, it's half baked. It's it's right. The politics of it no, are you're absolutely right. weak because he hasn't put a lot of time and thought into them yet. Um, right, 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 right. I I will say the introductory shots of the theater with the uh, with the hanging miniatures and and all of those effects shots of everything about the the factory is amazing. Yeah, uh, no, I I love all the miniature shit is so cool. Yeah, like I that was the only special feature I made my children watch with me was 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 the was the <laughs> yes. I I knew some of them already because I had watched some some video about this years ago. That right, I, right, like, right. Even having not seen the movie, I was like interested. I was like, "Oh, I love, I love practical effects on a really deep level. I want to know how this all works." And uh, so I knew what yeah. was going to talk about. But some of them were surprised because I hadn't heard all of them, and I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, the, the miniature shit is just so cool. It really is. It really is. Uh, yeah. The uh, yeah, I, I expected that bonus feature to mostly just be about the uh, roller skating sequence, right? Uh, I mean, it's the most like sort of famous thing, right? Yeah. And that people like to talk about, right? Right. And I was I was interested to learn more about the miniatures and the matte painting. I'm glad that stuff came up in it. Charlie Chaplin being doing funny things. Uh, it's great. Charlie Chaplin is. We had the also on here is uh, the Rink, which is a 1911, no 1917, I think short. From uh, from Chaplin, nineteen sixty, which this movie contains essentially inside of itself in a really weird <laughs> yes, way. Yes, fascinatingly enough, yeah. I, I found that really cool. I, I oftentimes we ask a lot of weird questions on here, like why did they choose to include that thing in here, or like, or we sort of, yeah. it, or it's very tangential, and it's like, well, no, this one just this movie contains large swaths right. of that movie just inside of itself. 
Yes. It's got Charlie Chaplin as a bad waiter. It's got Charlie Chaplin as a good skater. Both both very fun things to watch. Charlie Chaplin's uh, nonsense musical performance in the end of this movie basically reflects the, the a huge swath of the story of the rink. In yes. It. It's That's also true. Very neat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very very clear why why they chose to include the rink on on this because it's it's a lot of proto and it's you know in in modern times being sort of a farewell to the tramp as a character too right it is neat that he would revisit old old things uh, with with new ideas you know the the bad waiter stuff is the bad waiter stuff there's only so many jokes you can make as a bad waiter right. Uh, but like the skating sequences are not he's not borrowing the skating sequences from the rink for modern times. He's doing different things right, with skates. Right, he's because skates has a way skates. a way wider breadth of possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. You could almost you could look like you're about to die. That's always an option. Right. Right, right. And yeah, it's very fun. Um I also like the rink. The rink's got some really great gags. I it's something for of of like the 1960s silent era and just the contrast of the cameras. Everybody's in corpse makeup. Uh, right. And, and look, just look very weird. Uh, but the sequence where the husband, the wife, their lovers, and Charlie under an assumed name, the tramp under an assumed name, all show up at the skating party at the same time and just look at each other. And and we get the title card popping up mum's the word right it's it it made me laugh so much it was very good um, uh but yeah obviously understand why it's included here um and yeah this is a farewell to the tramp you know in the great dictator you can argue that it's a tramp ish character but it's not the tramp right 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 uh so this is our last our last appearance of him, and he gets a friend, uh, in the gammon to uh, to go off with with him. Uh, that is, of course, we we can deal with that being Charlie as a forty six year old uh, casting his his twenty three year old lover as his right as his equal, but but he is casting her as his equal in this movie as opposed to how he treated almost any other woman in in his films uh apparently well there's also something very i don't know like there's something very i'm like trying to struggle for the word but like it there's something almost like that's where like i can't like there's a sort of sadness to it in this one that like i don't know like there's there's like almost like a a kind of tone to the way like you can kind of read it in a lot of their interactions it's like that if it's very their relationship is very different than i would expect it to be i guess i don't know it's, yeah. it's hard for me to explain yeah. what i'm going for but it's like there's a sort of sadness imbued into their relationship like by like automatically not just beyond like their circumstances but like i don't know the yeah. way he interacts well, with her has a sort of like sadness to it yeah yeah and i think that Within the film, certainly true, but it seems like outside of the film, that's kind of true too. Uh, you know, they were together uh, for for a number of years. I think six or ten. Uh, she had previously been married very young, um, 
he obviously had had previously been married as well and and already had some kids uh they did not have any kids together and it really was a romance that grew out of a working relationship more than the other way around i think uh he recognized talent in her and she is talented here right right uh she does very well in the role uh, and then she's in The Great Dictator as well, and apparently that soured things. This was a fun movie that she was interested in doing, and then The Great Dictator, as the first full talkie Chaplin was doing, uh, apparently he's, I mean, we'll talk more about this in the future, obviously, but he was very stressed out right, about right. making The Great Dictator, and that rolled downhill, and she was not happy <laughs> with with that, and I'm sure it soured their relationship outside of the film as well. Uh <clears throat> But, but she is great here. Uh, Paulette Goddard is her name, uh, at least the one she performs under, uh, and she's she's really fun. Uh, and <laughs> I realized I realized when when we get to the restaurant sequence, and and her hair's done up, that when she's first introduced, she just looks very normal and modern, and it's right. because she has greasy straight hair. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, she's like in a t- torn burlap dress, uh, so that's not. I mean, you know, the t- modern dress. Well, by beyond any means, the but... honestly speaking, though, considering the way like fashion cycles, if it weren't yeah. torn, the dress yes. would feel very like when I was in college. Yeah, yeah, the dress is is. I mean, it's a colored to... like. Yeah. Essentially, like uh, whatever, like tennis dress or whatever, whatever you right, call right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, she just she feels very modern and and in a way where even later in the movie she does not feel that modern. Right, right. But but, but her st- the <laughs> stealing the bananas and just the look in her face, she's phenomenal. It's just I so really, I mean, like it's she's really just, fascinating that like they talked about him like doing close ups, which is not like a thing for him. Yeah, but like they yeah. work really well here. Like she she looks she like works well in close up. She gives some really like borderline haunting facial expressions at time yeah. in the close-ups yeah. and and they they there's a lot of very like well conveyed emotion in there like right. whereas like chaplin seems to be mo- most interested in conveying emotion and thought through physical action her her a lot of right. her strength seems to be rely it lies in like like she's she does well in close-ups like she conveys a lot of emotion yeah. very very well in close-up well She's she's also young enough where in uh in 36 she's playing to stereotypes of silent film right. in a way yes. yeah where she's sort of winking about being like look at me I'm like still I'm looking at me I'm the, still in a, I'm yeah. still in a silent movie yeah yeah right the way she steals the bananas particularly just the she looks like a mustache twirling villain in, right, in her right, face, right, right. The way she's holding the knife and and yeah, uh, so I feel like she's she's having more fun with it than anyone who's been in the industry as long as Chaplin has is capable of right, having, yeah, or at least fun in the way in ways that Chaplin is not capable of having anymore, right? Um, and kudos to Chaplin for allowing her to do that and seemingly encouraging her to do that, uh at least within this role. Uh, but yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the fun things I learned, uh, casting related, 
from one of the bonus features. I can't remember which one. Uh, was that uh, Alan Garcia, the guy who plays the boss uh, at the factory, was hired just because he looks yeah, like yeah, yeah, like Henry yeah, Ford. that was in one of the bonus features. I don't remember which one, but yeah, I'm really fascinated by like, like when you when you compare sort of like the notes from all the different bonus features, like some of them make yeah. it sound like oh, he met Henry Ford, and like. They kind of like tiptoe around it and they're like and it had an interesting and like sort of impression on him or whatever. He enjoyed talking to him. It's like yeah. it seems a bit like yeah. like it's very uh, euphemistic. Like it seems like it does not seem like Charlie Chaplin is a fan of what Henry Ford was doing like I th- as a person. I think that uh they might have to tiptoe around it historically. Because people know who Henry Ford is as a multifaceted human being now, right? Uh, I could see, I could see it going one way that uh, Chaplin recognized in Ford's assembly line usage, um, and and Ford's insistence that the Model T be cheap enough that someone working for him could afford one, right? Uh, those were things that had the possibility of becoming more pro worker than. Ford would ever allow them to actually be. right, right. And <laughs> but, well, and my uh, thought process on this sort of centers also around the idea that, um, like, one of the themes that like he's playing with here is that idea that like Ford's factory assembly line caused farm boys to faint when they like tried to work right. at that pace, and it's like, right, I mean, he makes right. a big deal, or not, not just faint, but like have nervous breakdowns. It's like, yeah, right. like that. That's a main theme, and that I don't. There's no way you have. There's no real way to couch. Uh, my job, the way I've designed it, gives people gives normal people nervous breakdowns as a positive element. Right, right. right? Yeah, whatever. Whatever Ford and Chaplin might have thought of one another when they first met. This movie is a critique of Henry. Ford. Exactly. That's where I'm uh, going with this. There's no. Yeah. If you combine that with the fact that they like he like specifically specked out the character like oh who's the most Henry Lord looking mu- motherfucker I can find let's get him <laughs> right right yeah is like yeah. it and then and then the boss is like absolutely like both a waste of space and a pain in the ass at the same time like right. it's really does not it does not it, what it has to say about bosses is not it may yeah. it may be failing somewhat in the in the um in the like sort of but, socialist critiques department and, and sort of thoughts department, but it's pretty much got bosses on lock. Yeah. And, and absolutely prescient about the surveillance state that we find ourselves yeah, currently yeah. living in that, that Chaplin no way could have foreseen no, at the no. time. Like the, the tech did not exist in any meaningful way uh, for <laughs> to even imagine the state of things that we would be living in. And and this is a boss who has cameras everywhere and can pop up in the bathroom to personally yell at you to get back right. to work. Right. Stop playing on your phone in the bathroom. <laughs> yes, yes. The 19, whatever, uh, 1936 version of that. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And he's a guy who, uh, he's introduced doing a jigsaw puzzle and reading the funny pages. Uh, yeah, while, then... while like lecturing his workers to go faster. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right, right. And then yelling to go just faster. Real, just real, uh, yeah. like real piece of shit boss vibes it's it's good job it's very well done yeah uh (laughs) i do love the weird eye candy of the guy the boss 
keeps telling to to turn up the energy of the or the yeah, speed I, of my, the assembly line. That was one of the like, why is that guy shirtless? Yeah, my my, <laughs> my, son, my children were He's like doing... especially like one of my youngest son was like, why is he naked? And I was like, I don't have an answer for you. And then of course that was followed by why are they all in their undershirts? Like I was like, well, right. these are not air conditioned buildings. That place p- fucking sucks right. to it work a, in. It is a hot factory, certainly, but, but also this guy is doing the least amount of work. Right, he's doing the least amount of work and wearing <laughs> also the least amount of clothes. Well, it's a hierarchy, yeah. and, and part of the hierarchy is yes. you can take off more clothes <laughs> the higher up you are, the hierarchy. The boss should, by all yeah. rights, be naked in there. Probably he is sometimes, because and... he's probably a sex pest. <laughs> like like all, yeah, like all tr- bosses in the turn of the century. <laughs> He's probably yes, but like all, like basically all men in this movie, even even the tramp. Yeah, all right, fair, <laughs> so, fair. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, um, but yeah, the uh, the nervous breakdown, the 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 ticks of muscle memory that the tramp exhibits moving forward from this, uh, and then those morphing into really a ballet. As he sabotages the machinery, I do love watching a man sabotage heavy is, machinery. There's nothing more beautiful. It's so that. good, yeah. Especially if that person has the grace of a ballet dancer. <laughs> yes, it's very good, and it and it you know it it turns sabotage into an art in a way that uh, makes you want to go sabotage the machines at your work. Absolutely, yeah. No, like, no <laughs> comment. Do it. Go. Yeah. Fucking yeah. just turn some bolts, uh, see what happens. <laughs> right, right. Uh, <laughs> pull that lever and that one, and also that <laughs> and then one. Pull it again. And... <laughs> Fuck it. Just back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. See what yeah. happens. See what happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very fun. Um, <laughs> this movie originally had even more stints in the hospital in it than it already has. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, and also a nunnery, like or well, a nun, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the The original ending of this movie was Chaplin gets drafted and goes to war, and then comes back and is in the hospital again. When the gammon comes to visit him while he was in the war, she became a nun, uh, and then they have their tearful goodbye. And apparently, all of that filmed as well, right? Uh, right. At least, sta- at least staged, uh. Because we have behind-the-scenes pictures of those sequences, um, which is fascinating. And I do kind of like the description of the original ending of uh, them saying goodbye and the tramp walks off alone, but, like, the spirit of the gammon follows him. Right, right. Uh, My only problem with that is that um, it's hard to read. That ending would be hard to read in the sense of, like, is it because she's like he's taking her spirit with him or is it be, she's like dead to him like you know what i mean like is he like rejecting right, her right. or is he bring you know what i mean and so she can't communicate I because guess. she's rejected or is she coming along because well she's got her own path but i i'm always going to remember right. her kind of thing my takeaway from the description we got was that it was it was her internal spirit wishing she could go along right which is like uh, also kind of, of like spells. i don't know it's i i'm yeah. i'm satisfied with the ending of this movie i think it yeah it works no good. i think i yeah, the ending as a to to say goodbye to the tramp with the tramp having a companion who is an equal, 
uh, who, you know, within they're holding hands as they walk away, but within the film, she's not even exactly a love interest. No, and that's, and that's kind of uh, what I mean is, like, it's almost, there's a certain sort of, like, and obviously this is not mapped to real life or anything like that, but, like, in the film, there's a certain sort of, like, childishness to the way that, like, his and her, like, interaction exists. Like, they're dreaming of their house together, but it's not, like, you don't get the impression that, like, they get a house together and they're sleeping in separate rooms. Right. Like, you, you, you know yeah. what I mean? There's a sort there's that's that feels like it's to a certain extent saying something right. about like what this they, relationship they is. They get a they get a one room shack and still manage and still to, manage to have the separate rooms. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the domestic dreams are sort of a husband wife domesticity, but uh, but really. She's much more, I think one of the bonus features says this too. She's much more akin to the kid than, right? Than yes, to, yeah, yeah. You know, she's like a ward that comes to the tramp more than anything, right? And, and, uh, and be- she becomes a bit, she becomes basically an equal, but like she's an equal, like again, it's like almost a, a sort of like what you, I guess, I don't know if the term domestic partnership has a meaning or not, at, but like. <laughs> right. But like we, I, the point I'm trying to get across is, is like, like, well, we could live in the same house and like spend a lot of right. time together because we like each other, but we don't have to like, we're not necessarily married or anything like that, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, and that's. Although it is, it is worth noting that he ended up having a common law marriage with her and not like. Right. Does feel like you know sort of an extension of that in some way, right? So. Yeah. Chaplin was a womanizer, yeah. certainly. Uh, I think we can pretty safely say that. Yeah, I don't think there's much debate history. on that particular topic. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was a common law marriage and they never had kids, uh, and also she was a very young woman who married young and sort of got out of that, uh, and the fact that he called her baby... Uh, <laughs> Like my baby, not like a hey babe. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's it's a some lot weird of overtones. The like, don't get me wrong. There's could... a lot of weird overtones there. I'm not trying <laughs> to imply that their relationship was like good. Um, I think. Well, I also think it's there is room for interpretation of their relationship that maybe it was an innocuous asexual thing, of uh, of an artistic ward relationship. Right, but. I mean, I doubt that, but also it's within the realm of possibility, I guess, from I what mean, we know about. Possible, right? <laughs> but she really is just delightful in every scene. Um, yeah, I do like. I mean, I, I really, I, I think she makes an excellent compliment, like to the to the whole the whole yeah. thing. I, I, I really the the, dy- the dynamic between them is I <laughs> is really neat. I really like watching. There's something fun about like the the title card like two weeks later and then she's out there and like they kind of do this whole like reunion scene every time and like yes yeah it's all kind of neat I I really like all that stuff a lot his first stint in prison I do want to talk about after the after the sabotage he goes to prison right and and first off the prison is also automated and mandated and is supposed to remind us of the factory immediately right, right. it is the second time we see him eat. It's a movie where there's a lot of food consumption in this movie. I mean, right? he's a hungry boy. Uh, what do you want? Right. He is a hungry boy all the time. And everyone is, the workers are defined by their hunger, right? Uh, and he is always 
Uh, <laughs> there are times where he shares a meal with someone. There are times where, uh, you know, that one coworker who he ends up feeding after he gets him trapped in the machine yeah. work <laughs> as a repairing the factory. In, in air quotes, not doing yeah. a, a very, right. uh, not doing an admirable job of it, but yeah. <laughs> Shoving the root end of a celery stalk into his mouth. Um, you don't want to eat that, uh, but uh, but yeah, um, and then running the coffee through the chicken as a funnel is it's a great gag, yeah, certainly, yeah. Uh, but uh, but the prison uh, <laughs> where he accidentally does cocaine and then becomes a glass trader, right? Yeah, I really no, love. It's, it's really like, weird. I I was like, the kids thought that was a really fascinating scene. I was I was amazed by it. I was like, not expecting that to be where it goes. I like how they he he gets to play a lot with facial expressions there, and like you get to like the movie leans so heavily on like making a hundred percent sure sure that you like know what's happening here. Right, I find that right. all very fascinating. Also, also, I guess it's I I miss boot because he goes to he goes to the uh, the ward after the sabotage. He's arrested and imprisoned. Uh, for leading a communist parade, and that's very right. important yes. to point out, right? Because the police attack the workers marching, and that is a thing that Charlie Chaplin does choose to put into his movie, showing the police attacking workers for doing nothing but demand Right, I mean, the, you know, it's worth noting, I mean, to give credit where credit's due, the police are assholes in this movie. Yes. They are both dumb Universally. and bad, as police yes. are. And and yeah. he sticks by that particular bit of thought. Like he's got that one down pat. He's figured it out. No arguments. Yeah. And certainly, police are dumb and bad. Uh, certainly, the tramp as a character has a history of right. The police are dumb. Right. And, well, <laughs> and, but there's the texture here of added of like, and they don't right. work for you. Right. They right, don't right. just not work yes. for the tramp, but they are against anybody who is not the company. The company, right? Or you right. Know, like they're they're, against, they're not just against him, the tramp. They're against literally every, essentially every right. worker in the movie. Yeah. So so while I am disappointed that the tramp thwarts a prison escape, it's not his fault. It was the cocaine, uh, cocaine doing the talking. The cocaine did it to him. Yeah. Right. At least within the universe, it is the cocaine doing it to him. And then and then he gets because he thwarted the. Uh, because he thwarted the escape, he gets creature comforts in prison, uh, where he's actually living a pretty good life in jail. Right, right. <laughs> that we see. Well, he gets his paradise the... in jail, right? Like food's right, provided, right. like yeah. decent housing is provided. Right. They're kicking yeah. him out to go live if, on the street, right? Like it's like, well, if uh, like I'm right. good here, and they and they are kicking him out like he gets his freedom for the same reason he got those those things he gets freed from jail uh as a uh, downstream of him thwarting the escape uh but he gets freed from jail and life's worse right <laughs> right yeah jail, like demonstrably right? worse yes yeah and and like a lot of uh prison sentences that are not designed to uh uh you know actually fix your the issues that cause you to commit a crime. Well, because uh, like in the in the case of this, like there's not that's like yeah. actually there's, impossible. There's no right? issue like, with it. You didn't right, right. do anything bad. Yeah, it's they sent him back into a world where uh, he is forced quite quite directly and immediately uh, to uh, commit more crime. Right. 
and he does it here to protect the gammon, right? That's why he, he directly commits more crime. Uh, and hilariously commits more crime. Yes. When, when, when the cops got his got his hand on him and he's stealing more stuff from the from the magazine. Oh, I itself. love it. It's <laughs> so funny. Like it's so the good. way he gets himself thrown back in jail is just so so yeah. good. It's like just like doing like going out of his way to like invite the cop in to watch him do crimes. Yeah. <clears throat> and then when he's put into the wagon, uh, and it's it's staged like it's just a mass transit like a bus right yeah or a or a subway they've even got the hanging the hanging uh uh grips um and we see hollywood boulevard out the door in the back as they as they pull down uh yeah this this i on the surface it is just funny but i think there is also a, a social critique to think about with uh, with this paddy wagon being essentially just a public bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it is one of the few instances where we see a non-white character in the movie as well, uh, with the African American woman toward the front of the bus, uh, and the guy sitting beside her. We could probably make an argument that he's meant to be Hispanic, but mostly he's just got a big bushy <laughs> mustache. Right, uh, he could be he could be German in the in the same day, right, right, right. might be Hispanic, I guess. But uh, but German in a way where he wouldn't have been white in 1936. So there is that Bohemian. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is a a very white movie beyond. Well, yeah, beyond yeah, the African American woman who shows up right true, there. Yeah, but, like yeah, and I imagine that street scenes even in Hollywood, uh, but anywhere in L.A. in 1936, we're not as white as the street scenes we see here. Right. <laughs> I One of the uh, things I'm fascinated about from one of the bonus materials is that, like, the prison escape, not prison, the thwarted prison escape attempt had to be redone because it had too much homosexual overtones. Yeah, the Green Office objected to hor- homosexual really or- overtones. I'm so curious what... I mean, we're not going to get an answer. We don't know. We're never yeah, going to know. But right. I'm fascinated by that idea. Like, what was in there? Yeah. Like, I understand what that, like, too much homosexual overtones is a pretty, like, I mean, given, considering the time and people's attitudes, like, it probably didn't have to be very much to trigger that. Yeah. But, like, also, I wonder what they were. Also, depending on who's being accused of the homosexual overtones, uh, in the did the cocaine make make Chaplin a crash a class traitor and gay? I mean, it's possible, uh, that would right? Be, yeah. Um, does he like kiss the warden or fillet the handgun? Uh, like, I mean, what, what could possibly I, have happened that's, in this? That's the question I'm asking. I'm fascinated by <laughs> yeah. the idea that like somebody had to like somebody watched this movie, like whatever that scene was, was like, whoa, this is way way too gay. It's like, okay, what does that right. mean? I don't. What does that mean in 1936? Especially? Exactly. Yeah, I what, just have no what, idea. What's too gay here? Like, where's that line? <laughs> I don't know. I really just don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, this is uh, this is this is labeled as a semi-talkie, which I find fascinating too. Um, obviously, 
Chaplin really just wanted to continue making silent films. Yeah, it was just um, not really. And we're already we're already like a decade after he should have stopped making silent films. <laughs> but uh, but silent films are what he's good at and still popular. You know, City Lights. Excuse me. Uh, City Lights apparently less less so in 1931. Less popular uh, and so much less so. Yeah, so much less popular that it did take him four years to to put out another movie. And this is a guy who, you know, made at least one movie a year for a very long time. I like, kind of wonder about that if it has to do with like if if it's one of those effects, one of those things where like 1931 is so like like talk is such the new hotness that you can't like not do it. Like, but by 1936, maybe you're deep enough into it where like maybe people are a little bit over like every movie you know what i mean like does that make sense where like yeah i i, I no, don't know I how to articulate it's also maybe just like uh, you know this one does have I think a little bit in it right i think it's still the new hotness to to the point you know this is throwback a little bit and we see that with the some of the gammons acting that we've already described um it's chaplin holding on to it but it's also you know, I can imagine that this was advertised as as hear the tramp speak for the first time, right? Right, right. Uh, even though he's singing gibberish Italian, is <laughs> when he actually speaks. Um, but it's also and and I'm reminded of a new a Liberté and and other early Rene Claire sound films where they're really playing with sound in interesting ways, right? Uh, it's fascinating here that all of the voices we hear, or at least the predominant voices we hear prior to him singing, are uh, are recorded, like within right, right. the universe. They're they're mechanically produced, or they're projections, they're radios. Uh, they are technologically produced. Right. Yeah. People don't sounds. make voice. Don't do voice in this movie. Yeah. Machines right. do voice in this movie. Yeah, um, and the only you know we do see the boss talk, but we only see the boss talk through right through the projection of him his video surveillance, uh, and even the salesmen with the food machine come in, and none of them actually talk. They play a sales record, right, and then pantomime to it, which is very very interesting too. It's this integ- integration of technology and speaking. While while still keeping a hands off of it, that that Char- Chaplin's definitely playing with. Well, and it, and it, and here, as a sort really of commentary like. on the thing he's doing, right? Like and what's right. happening in his industry. It's it's a fascinating thing to do, right? Yeah. To, to be like, yeah. I mean, this is this is what we're doing here anyway, um, right? Which makes it all the more fascinating that uh, apparently there was a dialogue script. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and, and then they just sort of like this isn't working. I don't want to do this. Right. Well, when you think yeah. about the fact that like, well, you know, we, you know, one of my one of my favorite movies, uh, Singing in the Rain, which deals with the yeah. idea of early talk films and like how fucking hard it is to record audio in a way where the audio sounds good and and how often European artists uh, especially the Italians chose to just fucking overdub everything. Just fuck it. Like, the, you know what I mean? Like we don't, right. we don't, we don't, the, all dialogue is it, recorded on set is garbage. We're not going to do this. Um, right, 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 right. It's just fascinating because this allowed him, <laughs> despite him taking like five times longer than any film should take to make at the time, 
allows him to streamline certain processes by just not having to give a shit what things sound like. Right, right. Yeah, and the bonus features that talk about filming on location in Silent Era being so easy because you didn't have to carry the sound equipment and it didn't matter if there was excess noise. Right, you can shoot you in a shoot harbor, scene. in a busy harbor, yeah. and just not have to give a shit. Just be like, go. Just, yeah. None of this sounds like anything here anyway. Like, if we want a bowhorn, we'll throw in a fucking bowhorn. Right. And that's that's a place where what Chaplin decides to do here makes sense. But it's interesting that it never seems to occur, have occurred to him to do what all of the tramp uh, descendants do, like Mr. Bean or, or Monsieur Hulot, where it's just the silent character reacting with hmms and errs and, and that, well, I mean, know, just they, I, body noises to people talking they around They mentioned them, right? briefly in one of the bonus features that he toyed with the idea of like, well, would the tramp just mumble? Would the tramp just like... Right, like right, grunt, right. A, a sort of hulo sort of deal, right? Yeah, um, and like I think that could have worked. I, I, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as a as an aesthetic choice. It, it would have worked fine, I think. But even we see with like hulo and stuff, that's a there's not a lot, probably a lot of not a lot of ro- like a lot of room in that in that field you know what i mean right. like you're you're, you're gonna get seem very samey very quickly if there's too many people yeah. essentially uh doing the same thing right yeah i imagine the tramp whistling more than grunting but uh, yeah i mean i think know. i think that a lot of us basically picture him whistling <laughs> always whistling. yeah even yeah, though like, we've never heard him whistle yeah yeah um also one thing pointed out in one of the bonus features uh particularly about the the silent silent traces is the name of that one um about the the ease of silent movies and filming on location and how how these silent movies end up as uh ethnography of a time and place that just doesn't exist right right right. uh because they're filming on location uh talking about the the first film the tramp was in uh taking place at a go-kart race that this is probably it's the, the only, only extant record like reference to yeah, the only evidence that this go-kart race existed um but then the uh where that's put to use within modern times of their ramshackle shack uh with the big ford plant in the background even encroaching right. on this uh, even this like this how shanty even town. this sort of like yeah. piss poor paradise that they have is doomed Will be consumed right. eventually. Yeah, by by industry, and certainly that area of LA has been consumed by industry. Right, right, right. right. Uh, no, and even more so, you know that uh, to get to get politically beyond the film, but with the same with the same politics of the film, uh, I think it's that bonus feature also talks about the way that harbor has changed and how in the 30s you would have had. Uh, Boats full of, uh, you know, house, you know, people living on boats, Japanese immigrants living on boats, and all of those people cleared out, uh, as part of the internment during World War II. And, Uh, and, and, you know, the sort of part they kind of talk about it's a bit the way they talk about it's a bit confusing, but like part and parcel of the inter of of Japanese internment in World War II is none of the land that was taken from them was ever returned, basically. Right. In a few very limited cases up in like Sonoma County, like 
local residents like held down their land for them and returned it like like yeah. friend like neighbors and friends actually did it but by and large people were interned the land was stolen it was never returned as as america right. likes to do uh yes as is the sort of uh yeah. put modus but operandi that, of america right but also was uh one of the stated initial reasons for uh jewish internment in Germany, that land clearing, right? Right, right. That, that bringing back, uh, we need to control these farmlands. Well, and this one's sort something... of, a, the, the Japanese internment almost works in the, uh, sort of in the opposite direction. Right. Like, oh, well, I mean, it's safety. We've got we've to gotta do this. And, oh, and look at all right. this land that got cleared up. But we've got to use it. As long it. as they're gone. Yeah, as long as they're, they're gone, we might as well back. They're enemies of the right. state. Yeah, but but interesting, you know, we talk about that historically talking to far, farmland so much. Interesting to get this hint that that happened right, that with it's, the it's much space broader, of L.A. Right? as well. Yeah, that it covers that as much, bro- yeah. even broader than that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, you know, his, the uh, <laughs> just so often in a Criterion bonus feature that is even designed to put something into its historical context. We don't get small details like that that are just really interesting right. for me to grab onto. I've been, I've like, been really, I and it, it seems to be a feature of these re, more recent releases. I've been really yeah. impressed by the video essays that tend to accompany these now. Just really do right. a, like, a lot of work to like help you understand the movie better. From a, like What was the one that we had a while back? I think it was for House. Yeah. had a really neat one that like tried to place it in sort of a, both a historical and sort of like a cultural context that I thought was really it's just I don't know the Criterion Collection's like stepped its game up in like the last 50 to 100 spines uh right. also means we have to watch 10 times as much material but yeah well, I think it also coincides with the uh, introduction of Blu-ray to the Criterion Collection, so it's they've got to fill that space. space. Yeah. Well, these so, movies didn't yeah. get any bigger. Fuck. Like, there's a lot of space <laughs> right, in this Right, disc. right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's that aspect, too. So we can anticipate uh, an increased amount of yeah, bonus Yeah, and already we're starting forward. to reach a point where I have to draw the line at some point where I'm like, look, I'm just right. not going to watch this. Watch this all. is not possible. Like, yeah. this one, we I had to bail out on all the, the talking head stuff at the end. I was like, I'm just not... This isn't doing it for me. I'm not interested. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm out. The composer I had to bail out on. I was like, I'm done. I'm yeah. not interested. Yeah, the composer. The composer. I played the entire thing, but I. I also dipped out. Well, on that's basically what happened. Is I got quick. about halfway through it, and I was like, I'm <laughs> yeah. not even listening. I'm talking to my family. I'm not doing yeah. this. Like, Right. Peace out. So David Raskin is the composer, and it, and it is kind of interesting in that he talks about Chaplin being an autocrat. And that he was he was initially fired from production because he refused to be a yes man to Chaplin, uh, and then uh, Alfred Newman, who who worked on the music too, uh, insisted on rehiring him, and he had a meeting with Charlie and 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 Raskin essentially told Chaplin that I, you guys know I'm talented, but I'm not going to I'm not going to just sign off on whatever you want to do. I'm going to challenge you. Uh, which you know is probably very easy for David Raskin to claim. He said in nineteen in the nineteen ninety two. Right, interview. right, yeah. Um, that, there's something very. So, it's like okay, sure, whatever, yeah. man. So, so maybe that's how it happened. I, I maybe not though. Um, one bonus feature that I wanted, I I specifically told Pat he had to watch. Uh, and I had I'm already watched happy. by the time you. 
yeah. told me, but yeah. yes. Uh, um, it's called For the First Time, and it's a short documentary from 1967 by Cuban uh, Cuban filmmaker Octavia Cortazar. And Criterion, uh, if you want to give me more stuff like this, absolutely, yeah. all the time, every... If, if it exists, give me this. Uh, it is a documentary about a uh, crew of people taking movies to rural uh, Cuba just after the revolution uh, and sh- coming into communities that have heard what a movie is, kind of know that well, you go to. I the mean, movies, like, there's a so few people like... have seen maybe one when they were in the <laughs> yeah. city or something, right? There, but they're like, yeah, I'm aware of movies. I mean, it's 1967. Mostly, we're talking to people who have no idea what a movie is, have never experienced a movie, uh, might ideologically understand that a movie is a thing, but know the word pellicula, uh, but but don't uh, right, right don't have any personal experience with with film in any way. Uh, being brought modern times and just, yeah. Uh, one, just as a piece of a picture of Cuban society in this time and place, very fascinating, but just very beautiful about people's reactions to the art. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I also love, there's one, there's one woman they interview who says, uh, I want to go and find out what it is. Uh, and she's talking about the concept of film more right, than right. about the movie particularly. But she says, I want to go to and find out what it is. I don't want anyone to tell me about it. And, and I just love that she's never seen a movie before and is already concerned, concerned about spoilers. Right, uh, right, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's it's fascinating. She's concerned about spoilers in the context of, like, <laughs> don't tell me what a movie is, okay? Like, right, not just, right. like, this movie. Like, I want to experience it for myself. Don't spoil the concept of movies The concept for me. of movies. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I I um, love everything about it because it's it it is it is fascinating to think of movies in the con it, like there's a lot of be- there's a lot of beauty in this thing okay but like there's a, something really fascinating about like the idea of a person like they're they're all kind of doing that thing when you're like really hedging your bets like about like well like I mean right. I kind of get it it's like a dance right <laughs> like right. it's just like oh wow yeah. like just like how deeply human the whole thing is, as they sort of like try to engage with it, like in that way, but it's also like, well, like they don't really have a good way to approach it. So they're kind of struggling. It's really interesting. At the start where they're at the school and they send the two kids out to talk to the movie makers, because these two kids have said they'd seen a movie before. And and then they get out with the movie. They clearly have not seen a movie. uh, (laughs) Like you asked, you asked a bunch of five-year-olds, like, have you ever seen a movie? And they're like, yeah, sure. Whatever, ma'am. Like I've seen a movie, of course. I saw a movie. It uh, it had ketchup on it, and it uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah. My uncle who worked for Nintendo once saw a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, everything about well, it is just and, so and delightful. And one and so person in there, so one person in there, makes a reference like, "Oh, well, this would never would have happened in the old government." Like, there's a no, there's an acknowledgement right. that, like, yes, this is a benefit brought about purely by the fact that there's an attempt to begin sort of like leveling the field of experiences across the island rather than like, yes. uh, you're the well-to-do, you get movies, you're the not well-to-do, you live out in the middle of nowhere and work your, your ass off until you die. Like, right. There's a, it, it's, it's early days. 
1967. Yeah. But like the idea that the, like no no system but this system would cook up the idea. Well, we gotta fucking load a projector on a truck and fucking get that shit out in the middle of nowhere. Like you right. know what I mean? Like that's not. Yeah, I right. mean other other systems would do uh, that for pay. Right. Other systems would do that for villages where you didn't have to truck through the jungle right, to get to. Right, 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 Like We saw something uh, about akin to that in Spain, right? Didn't we see a thing where like, it, right. like they were going to like, uh, rural Spain to show movies or something to that effect? Uh, the spirit of the beehive is what you're right. thinking of. And that and that has a, uh, a traveling film uh, come and show Frankenstein to a... Poor, but with middle class elements, village. Well, noticeably a place where they had to Spain. drive through the middle of the fucking jungle. Like we see some of the roads right, they're right, driving right. on to get there. <laughs> yeah, in this, it's yeah some treacherous shit, man. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's you know that's that's within Francoist Spain. So, so that sort of enculturization of uh, of elements that wouldn't necessarily have normal access to this stuff does happen in fascist governments too but right uh, right i i i meant like how like yeah that is true although i would argue that like in in general because the way power bases for fascist governments work there's not going to be a lot of that happening in this you know like it's probably not going to involve like of all the fascist states out there, not a lot of them have bothered to enculturate their people yeah. with like movies per se in this way. Right. Like, it's enough to do that in the city, right? It's not necessarily necessary to do that in the middle right. of nowhere. And not, I'm not saying that didn't actually happen in Spain under Franco, but the spirit of the beehive is a fiction. It's a narrative, right? Uh, and Although I got, I got confused. Being... I thought there was like an extra piece on there talking about something akin. Oh, maybe to there that. was. I, I, I do Maybe think there was. we did encounter some something akin to this where they would like project on the side of a happening. building or something like that. Like I yeah. understand that this like sort of stuff happens, but like the idea that you need to like that it's for a pur- its primary purpose is just to like expose people to a thing that like the yeah. city has had for thirty five years or forty years and they've just yeah. never gotten to experience. Is this a fascinating <laughs> right. idea? The- The communists of Cuba are showing modern times to uh, to people who no one has ever made an effort to get a movie. Exactly, in front of before. that's my, and I don't think uh, ever would. Is, like that's the point. Never yeah. would. There's no, <laughs> there's no reason for a non-communist government to spend the money to do that. Exactly. Basically. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, right. So. Yeah, it's just it's really it's really beautiful. And and it's a great film to do it with because it is mostly silent, uh, you know, uh but not not wholly silent, so it won't feel out of date in a way that even like the rink would feel out of right. date. You know. I think I think someone who's never seen a movie before seeing the rink uh might actually be scary. Those people look like ghosts. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah, there's almost too much like there's too much cruft of like of uh, yeah. like the sort of silent era film things going on there. I what I'm fascinated by is also the idea that like to a certain extent there's a sort of a crude knowledge like a crude, not crude, but like a crude knowledge when it comes to like how things are supposed to work in the world, right? In like a of yeah. grammar and stuff. And like 
you know, we deal with this with like kids, right? Like I, I was listening to a podcast a while back that was like talking about the idea that like you and I live through the, with regards to video games, the invention of 3D in video games. Like that was a thing we had to become yes. accustomed to. Kids these days are just like sort of it's hit, it hits them so early that it's not a thing they have to grow accustomed to. But like the jump between no movie to full on color move like sound movie it's totally doable. It happens. Plenty of people have gone through that. But like to a certain extent it almost feels like this is like a, a nice like middle ground step where it's like look, you're mostly going to just be like it's going to be like, we're going to go easy on this the first time. And also that it's got like nice little relatively easy to comprehend like socialist overtones, right? Uh like right about alienation from labor and things like that. Like it's 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 a neat little it's a neat one to start with, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not like hitting yeah. somebody overhead and, over the yeah. head with the indoctrination <laughs> stick, right? Like right from day one. Alienation from culture is also a thing. Right. There, right. right? <laughs> the alienation of labor, you you're you know, you're separated from the fruits of your labor. But part of the fruits of your labor is the uh social production of cultural works that right, you don't right, have access right. to. It's a sort of different affair right? because like, you know, with alienation of labor, you're talking about like your separation from your work and like the idea that like you can yeah. sell your labor without selling your body and that's sort of this whole idea. Right, right, right. Whereas, you know, there is, but you're right, like this idea that like in order, sort of like like se- slightly separate concept is this idea that like in order to generate capitalist profit, you need to like create different classes of humans and one of those classes is has to be even removed from culture itself, like or at least from the dominant right. culture. And we see that in the United States and other places, right? Where like, oh, you're not allowed to participate in the dominant culture. You have to make this other cons- one that is considered yeah. like lower rather than participating yeah. in the, the actual like sort of hegemonic culture of the society. Right. And within within the US certainly, uh movies were part of that hegemony uh on a very base level. Everybody Movies, movies were equalizing and and as such were propagandizing. Right, right. but uh, bear in mind that 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 certain ca- categories of people were not were not deemed worthy of participating in it in the, like in like seeing themselves in it. Right, right. Like right, even right. though it was used to propagandize and broadly sent to the entire society, not everybody got to be a part of it. Right, like you know, right. you, you know, your your average. African-American who went to the movie theater didn't get to see any other African-Americans in a movie. That's just not a thing that was allowed to happen. And they certainly weren't allowed to see a movie in a place with white people, right? Like, you know, there's this sort of like, you still need to separate the culture, right? Like, you have to isolate. And even class-wise, you know, there are are examples of movies of realistic portrayals of very poor people. And Modern Times might even be one. Right, right. Uh, of of a realistic portrayal of the experience of someone living in the U.S. during the Depression, uh, you know, it's certainly filtered through the comedy of the trip. Right, but but, still but there. bear in mind, considering uh, how hardcore censorship bureaus have tended to operate, like it does right. seem like a fair amount that of is, like overt poverty made it into the movie. Right, right, and that is not that is not common. And and when poverty usually does make it into movies, it is pornographic right 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 uh, it is it is and and almost exclusively uh, yeah. notably enough like it's a person is, who's going to by the end of the movie is going to be somehow like lifted out or like right. 
Yeah. In the movies no. we've seen, whereas like, no, the tramp is not going to be any better off at the end of this movie than when he started in terms of like right. wealth. Yeah. Starting starting with our next episode, we'll be exploring a box set of films by a production company called BBS, uh, which came out in 67. And those were particularly a pushback against this same sort of uh, escapism idea of film post-World War II that we're getting we're getting into realism of the the daily experiences of young people in uh in film portrayed in film of course we'll start that off with head next week which is obviously not what that is uh, yeah, um, yeah and then the least of that and then, in uh, film but yeah and then easy rider which is maybe a very kind a very of? very particular yeah. version of what that is but um, but yeah uh but that's sort of the idea of the box set of of what bbs was doing in the early years was realistic portrayals that just aren't happening in film at the time which are telling middle class or even upper middle class stories that even even in the family dramas are aspirational as far as lifestyle right, right. goes right and we see that, you know, we see Chaplin, we see the tramp having that aspirational dream of a very middle class, uh, you know, 50s sitcom. We're still 20 years before the 50s sitcom, but, but very middle class well, suburban and, and, 50s and sitcom And fascinatingly dream. enough, like, has no, like, it's interesting because, like, the, um, the, the, the bonus feature talks about it as, like, well, it is truly a utopia, right? Like fucking grapes just hang out their window the cow milks itself right 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 and like there's yes. a kind of fascinating dichotomy there because it's both it both is a true utopia but it also seems to like in my mind i read it as also seems to indicate that like this person's never even been exposed enough to this world to understand like what suburban life would be like right right like he has no grounding in reality which is a fascinating thing to have also be in a movie you're about to show to a bunch of people who have lived out in the countryside so far in the countryside that they've never yeah. seen a movie before is like to also like to some extent like the he's experiencing a thing that they that has also been a part of their life where like oh people have described these things that i've never gotten to like see your experience right like i don't know right What's like I could you know if you ask them to imagine what a movie is, it is probably about as far off of the mark as this is the tramp's idea of what a house like what living in the suburbs is like right, right. It is kind of interesting that uh, that that scene is is filmed in a place that would be so suburban in the coming decades. Like like they're literally in the canyon yeah right yeah they're just it it is it is all very fast and like it's just like yeah and in some capacities right like he has yeah it's 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 really interesting to think about like uh, you know he's he has dreamed up this sort of like ultimate suburban lifestyle that like i don't my understand like you know i don't know enough about history to know but like that's not in my mind, like where my mind would go when somebody was going to ask me to describe, like, what did a ni- person in 1936 imagine, like, ideal home life to be? It feels yeah. much more like a post-war sort of world than a than a pre-war. You know I what think, mean? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly within the Depression, uh the dream of normal life could get much broader than, you know, it's like John Milani has that joke about Donald Trump being a, a stereotypical hobos. Right. Dream about of what, what a rich, rich person yeah, is yeah, like. Yeah. 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 
<clears throat> I'm going to have a building so large with my name on it. I'm going to have a toilet made of pure gold, right? And that's the sort of dream that that tra- the tramp is having here. You know, it's not as ostentatious as that because he's not dreaming about being the richest person in the world. He's dreaming about being happy. Yeah, in, what does happiness look like? What does like with, satisfaction look woman. like, right? Yeah, and satisfaction for him means owning the means to production down to the fact that your cow milks itself. You don't even <laughs> right, have to labor right, right. to get the milk. Um, only the cow the is cow. exploited you're, here in yeah. this situation. You're also not going to the store to get the milk, right? It's just there. Right, like you know, literally not, you can, no mana, mana from heaven, you can like just fucking pull things off of trees and just eat them, like straight right, up. Right, right, yeah. Um, right, and that that sort of dream of, you know, it's, you know, it's the Guthrie song, California's the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, and it's... It's what he's dreaming here. It's just everything, land of milk and honey, everything plentiful. Literally just look out your door and you've got Right, food. and it's just, it's fascinating uh, because, to me it's also, but it's fascinating because, like, it's, like, this is, and I, I might just have my history, like, I, I probably just don't know history well enough, which I'm totally willing to admit. Like, it, fe- I was always under the impression that 1936 would be, like, basically pre-white flight, right? Like, I guess it's not. I think because it, this like this looks like what in, everything is described. Like this is like the GI Bill. Like here's what we're selling to you. Yeah. Um. So in larger communities like LA, I think that suburban flight really takes off earlier, and even within within the North across the board, uh, and larger cities around the country, uh, the Great Migration. And that's post World War One right. and around World War One, the Great Migration of uh, rural blacks moving into the cities and moving north uh, really does trigger a white flight. And uh, you know, there it takes the form of redlining, and the the white folks aren't necessarily moving; they're just passing. Well, I mean, I think that has to, to do with like the idea that like out. where are the but, jobs? Like you still have the factories yeah. in the city at this point, right? Like so, you still right. have to be close but, enough to get to that. Yeah, but within within Columbus, Ohio's history, particularly, I can think of uh, even as early as as the twenties, there are communities passing zoning code to mandate setbacks and mandate uh, housing size and lot sizes that price out right, the very right. poor and price out. I mean, out but where are we talking non- at that point single family homes? We're not talking we're no longer talking about doing yeah. uh we're no longer talking about multifamily units at that point. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and <laughs> places that uh you know, these new builds that are on a half acre or more and little suburban things that you would recognize as suburban neighborhoods today uh, that, you know, are built with racial covenants that say this house can never be sold to a Jewish person. Right, this house right, can right. never be sold, well, it, sold to, yeah. a, to an African-American or an Italian. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just know, interesting because stuff. I never conceived, I've never, like, in my, this movie opened up a view of, like, 1936 yeah. that I've never had before, right? Because, like, in my mind... Yeah. That that what they're showing me is exactly what like you see on TV in 1950 right. something as no. the, the as right. the dream sold to white America like circa yeah. 1950 or whatever right certainly in the 50s with uh, with integration we get a much more organized pushback against that 
uh, and we get what we the beginnings of what we call white flight, which continues through the eighties and nineties with with busing and school integration, uh, continues to for, uh, to to see that happening. Uh, but that that insularity and and the movie like the the rich the rich suburbs of Columbus all got founded in the twenties and thirties. Right. Okay. Then. Uh, then in the 50s, we get enclaves within Columbus, autonomous communities that still use all of the city's resources, but elected their own mayor, basically, right, right. Is, is what we see what we see happening. And those are still like suburban neighborhoods because Columbus sprawl and L.A. sprawl. This is true, too, for I, I think as well. Uh, we get housing developments that just develop into towns over the right. course of things and towns with no infrastructure because they were just housing developments right, right? they're just a, not a even churches thing in there. to live in they're to just, drive somewhere else right yeah yeah right so uh i think of minerva park here in columbus as a, as a particular example of that where they have their own police department their own mayor but they're maybe 40 acres completely surrounded by columbus <laughs> so weird uh they've got a lake uh well, that's everybody loves the lake but yeah yeah, and their their police department is also the library. And it's, well, okay, yeah. it's just like it's like it's a small town somewhere else, and it's just in in Columbus, and it only exists because they didn't want black people to live there, right? And that's yeah, uh, yeah. So, but that's that's something that didn't exist until the fifties, Minerva Park. Uh, when I when I think about 1920s, 1910s, the the post uh, Great Migration stuff, uh, we're talking like Upper Arlington here in Columbus or, or Dublin here in Columbus. The sort of uh, what what are still rich rich suburbs right. of the city, and, uh, where money has been accumulating for a hundred years by the as of this recording, basically. But yeah, so that's, I'm not surprised to see that sort of thing. I am surprised, similarly to you, that the dream the Tramp has very much feels like a 1950s sitcom. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's shocking, Suburban like, dream, yeah. yeah. It kind of blew my mind. But, like, I was like, wait, what am I watching? Like, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, just another way this movie is very prescient. Well, but right? also I think, like, honestly, like, it opens up a window into, like, so o- I feel like so often when we watch films from, like, right on the edge of this era, it's still very focused on city life. And, like, we see a lot of things yeah. in apartment complexes in, you know, I'm thinking of other sort right. of, like, late silent era to, to like, early talking yeah. era movies even, we've watched. It's always, yeah. like, the city, and it's always, like, and this could be in a city, but it's a different view of the city. It's the, it's the like, oh, like, right. the sort of suburban sprawl version of that rather than a, um, yeah. and, and I just LA's got that mind, suburban right? sprawl. Yeah. 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 Whereas something like Anus La Liberty that we've already talked about that has a lot of the same themes takes place in Paris. Right. Right. right exactly. And, no, and Paris, Paris has sprawl, but it is urban sprawl right. for until, you know, until the movies we see in the 60s and 70s where we get, finally start to see the suburban sprawl. Right. Of, right, of right. Paris as we understand suburban sprawl. And even that's very urban. And, with, and I feel with, like a lot of earlier silent, silent and like early talking films that we've seen. Within the United States, it's like, well, they they said it in New York or they said it in like it's either out in the countryside and it's very countryside or it's like in New York Uh, with 
as as the bonus features point out with with Chaplin and the other silent comedians working in Hollywood at the time uh were literally filming on the streets of LA right yes right? yeah <laughs> you know, oftentimes just from a different angle of the same street corner that they use for a different <laughs> right, gag in right. a different movie right yeah i also will say it's uh i keep calling this movie prescient but also that's uh that's the fallacy of of modernity, right? I look at this and think it's prescient, but really, this is just the same shit we've been dealing with for a right. Like years, it's just right? sort of that, like, well, so, can you extrapolate the same bullshit and like with like slightly <laughs> different like like overtones, right? Like with different like right, slightly different right. situations. Yeah, right? sure. The rules aren't sure. The surveillance capitalism, yeah, the surveillance capitalism didn't exist at the time in in really any way. It could have, right? Two-way radios didn't even really exist. Yeah, I mean, they still right? got police but, call boxes, right, in this movie. So yeah, yeah, but uh, but we're in we're in a point where, yeah, it makes sense that that would happen. So right, um, right, and like that, like given given sort of the technology to spy on the worker, will the right. will 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 the capitalist spy on the worker? Damn straight, he will. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's why we have so many managers above us already, right? You know, right? Exactly. But it still looks yeah. for the time, right? As the movie point, as the doc, as the bonus features point out, like it's science fictiony, right? Like it's right. supposed to be right. like it's a it's a sort of like um, hyperbolic version of what the factory already looks like, right? Like he takes a tour of yeah. of Henry Ford's factory and then extrapolates, like, what if it's even more of that? Right. Like, what if we turn that up? past 11 which it's already at to like some other number even higher up right 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 yeah it's interesting that you know that that sort of two-way talking screen or one way really right because the 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 boss can see you but you can't see the boss in that situation except for where the camera is on for him to yell at you right but that that sort of screen-based surveillance is something that would still show up as science fiction in movies in the 60s and 70s. Right, right, right. Because yeah, like, no. well, and, and, and where it shows up in those movies is like, well, now we have this technology in theory, but like yeah. it hasn't been widely installed, right? Because like, right. well, as it turns yeah. out, this shit's fucking expensive. And if, if, you know, the flip side of all capitalists is also like, will my surveillance state cost me too much money? <laughs> right, right, right. Would right. it e- be easier yeah. to just have the workers spy on each other? Probably. So let's just do that. Yes. With, yep. <laughs> Just introduce a bounty system and we get around the, all the problems. Uh, yeah. Ah, uh, what a world. What a, what a hell. Yep. Um, yeah. I'm really glad to have watched it. I'm glad to have watched it with my, my family. I, it was, there was a lot of giggling. Like it, his gags are just Excellent. so fucking like, it is, a, it is an they astonishing really thing to me. That something can reach across nearly a hundred years of history and make a couple kids laugh. That is like mind blowing yeah. to me. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I think there are aspects visually of the rink that would be more off putting to your kids. Like you already oh, mentioned, your youngest sort of rejects, rejects, that rejects are black, black and white, and white out movies of, out, out of, out out of, of hand. hand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we're we're to the point in 36 where the camera quality has increased enough that it's 
it's easier to to see that continuity and, right. and to get into it. He and didn't connect notice with it. at all. Like he's had to. Like he's never like tried to sit through a black and white. Like not like a, a the few silent films he's had to like sit through. He has not had to yeah. sit through. He has had to like he has wandered into the room and like didn't have anything else to do and like been in the room when they when I was with. And that's like that's off putting. Silent right. films are deeply off putting to people who are not used to them. Like, um, right. It just doesn't feel right. Uh, that being said, I did have to read the entirety of Kung Fu Hustle to them, and they enjoyed the, every fucking minute of it. So, like, this does not hold entirely true. Like, the things I say, nothing right. is universal right. here. But um, yeah, there's just enough audio and 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 sound in this to make it like, and the, as you pointed out, the quality's high enough that like, oh, it, it you're you've hit the point where it doesn't feel like a like one of those kind of black and white films where like it's about to fall apart at any moment and, like the next yeah. couple minutes of visuals might be completely incomprehensible right um there is one other thing i wanted to bring up before okay. we pull this too close actually and that is uh something that comes up in the essay uh which is by uh Saul Austerlitz um Austerlitz points out that after modern times, Chaplin grew increasingly serious about politics, Austerlitz says. Uh, and we can see that, obviously, with his next movie being uh, Great Dictator. You know, that's a pretty <laughs> pretty, pretty political right. film. Um, so, apparently, uh, in the run-up to World War II... Um, Chaplin gave a speech in San Francisco talking about the urgency of Russian war relief uh, in which he used the phrase comrades. Uh, and then post-war, uh, 52, when Chaplin and his then-wife uh, traveled to London for the premiere of Limelight uh, while he was on the ship. He got word that the U.S. Attorney General James McGannery had invalidated his reentry permit. The U.S. banned him for being a communist uh, while he was while he's traveling for business. Well, they, the, America's gonna. The America. U.S. Attorney General decided he would not he would not be welcome back. Um, yeah, and that is that is why Chaplin ended up living in Switzerland. Oh, which is interesting it's because of, the like, US they don't talk out. about that at all yeah. in this. In this, like, yeah, that is interesting. Like, got just like, yeah. oh, while you're gone, we're just gonna, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, he he eventually could have uh, applied for reentry. He wasn't like blacklisted. Uh, but he did not re-enter the U.S. for forty years. I mean, I like honestly speaking, right? Like a country that you've contributed significantly to the sort of like cultural landscape of you, black, like essentially blacklist you. Like fuck those guys. I'm not, you know, yeah. like ah, it would have been. I think the late uh, the late sixties. He got he got a lifetime achievement Oscar and he did come back to receive that in person. So not not quite full. Yeah, about twenty years after yeah. he was. Officially but I would be exiled. pretty bitter about that. That would be a very bitter uh, yeah. pill to swallow there. Like, yeah, 
I found a I found a quote from Chaplin outside of the essay. I found a, a quote from Chaplin on it. He says, "Whether I re-entered that unhappy country or not was of little consequence to me. I would like to have told them that the sooner I was rid of the hate beleaguered atmosphere, the better. That I was fed up of America's insults and moral pomposity." Uh, yeah. So <laughs> he seems to have taken getting kicked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, to be fair, uh, nothing he says there is false, but also it kind of sounds like <laughs> one could write it off as just being bitter, but also he's being honest. Right, so, but like, right. bear, bear in uh, mind that like, if you combine that with like, what was clearly like a sort of like trajectory towards like, oh, yeah. this place is a shit show right. and like, hurts people, right? Like, it d- does bad things. Like, well, like, you know, you're... Because bear in mind, right. anybody like him, you know, lived through America, you know, watching sort of the, the sort of fascism of America yeah. grow and like, you know, pre-war, right? There was all those Nazi rallies in 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 New York and stuff. It's like you know, right. you, you're, like anybody with eyes open at all was sort of watching what was happening, right? And it's sort of well, you know, yeah. I mean. It's interesting that that that's how that's all sort of hammered out for him. Yeah. Yeah. So, Charlie Chaplin, probably not a great guy, but for at least a minute in the late 30s, uh, had some some really interesting things going on. Uh, There are some other bonus features on the DVD that we didn't uh, talk about and didn't really need to talk about. There's a, uh, a home movie, basically, uh, shot I by an associate the of, whole thing. I, of Chaplin yeah. when he and Chaplin and uh, and Godard um, no not Godard now I'm saying her name as I should I, say yeah Goddard. I noticed that I was like wow this anyway, is a fascinating yeah. turn yeah I've decided to pronounce her name incorrectly in the way that I should be pronouncing Goddard um, anyway uh, with him and with Chaplin and Goddard uh, spending the weekend on a uh, on a, a boat uh, putting around, uh, around Southern California, um, and and basically just play acting their own little movie. Uh, it's fun, I guess. I don't know. It it was fine. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, there is I'm impressed the, you watched the man who it shot that I film. Had no interest at all. Yeah, the man who shot that film. There is an equally long special feature of his daughter talking about that movie uh which is great yeah i don't know i like i very much dis. i like i thought again if you were like if you had the blu-ray in hand you're like i really love this movie and like i want to watch i could see a person be like i want to watch all this stuff this is all very interesting to me but like those are the ones i had to draw the line i was like this has nothing really terribly to do with the movie i watched this is really the the agony and the ecstasy of of uh criterion uh, Blu-ray special features. We get we get for the first time this beautiful Cuban thing that I never would have experienced. Oh no, yeah, and I'm so happy to have seen. And then we get <laughs> we get what amounts to like a whole movie this thing, for no reason. Yeah, yeah, and, a whole and movie then an interview with sure, the daughter of the person who made the whole movie, which is just like a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm being very dismissive, and I apologize if. Uh, 
if she is independently famous and I should actually care who she is. But uh, Well, but even then, my, my perspective on it is, is we start getting too many steps removed from like the core principle, which is like, well, I watch the movie and I want to watch things that are related to the movie, right? Like, right. It, I, I didn't get very far into that to that piece, but like I became pretty disinterested pretty soon because it's like, well, I don't know, like... I don't need to watch a 20 minute home movie. Like again, like if you're like really into the movie and you have the Blu-ray, like I totally get like being like, all right, well I'm going to watch this. I want to see everything. But like, you know, we have to draw the line somewhere. I draw a line at that. <laughs> That's where the line is for me. Like not going to watch that. Sorry. I'll watch yeah. film um, historians and shit. Talk about the movie all day. Yeah. Uh, Alistair cook is, uh, the guy who shot that film, just to to put it uh, out there, uh, Susan Cook Kitteridge is the name of her daughter, and or the name of his daughter, who talks here, and she appears to be a uh, congregational church minister. Okay, uh, which is, uh, yeah, um, or at least there's two people named Susan Cook Kitteridge in the world. If not, I mean that's uh, also very believable. Like any any name, there could be more than one of them. Yeah, but yeah, Alistair Cook, uh, her dad, uh, would eventually host Masterpiece Theater on PBS, which is probably why anyone anyone in my generation might know who he is, right? As that that old British guy who hosted Masterpiece Theater, right? <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, that sort of historical stuff is not of interest to me so criterion less of that in the future more, more really more like of... out of nowhere cuban <laughs> documentaries fewer yeah. home yeah. movies and interviews with people related to if you can movies. if you can find a related cuban documentary short to put on every dvd release moving forward criterion please just do i know you can i do mean it. i believe in you, you know what send i Scors- send scorsese down there He'll find them on the <laughs> right, bus. Right, right. They'll be, be found on the under a seat on a bus. Like <laughs> all I'm saying is, I will accept nearly f- documentaries from nearly any revolutionary state. Like I, I'm good with any of them. Right, like any just, just, just hit me with it, man. Like just, yeah. You know, there's a bunch to choose from. Some of them only existed for a very short period of time. I'll take. Well, as I said, uh, next week we will be uh, jumping into the BBS uh, box set. America Lost and Found, the BBS story, uh, kicking off with Head, the film directed uh, by uh, Bob Rafelson, starring the Monkees. Uh, we have a guest for Head. Jonathan Hape joins us. We actually already recorded it, and it's a really Shh, fun conversation with secrets. someone who loves the Monkees. We actually were going to have a guest this week. Uh, our, our dear friend and supporter, Adam Speakerman, uh, wanted to join us to talk about our first Charlie Chaplin movie, but timing did not work out. So sorry we didn't get to you, Adam. Uh, check out past uh, episodes with Adam, though. Uh, he's super fun to talk to and has a really great knowledge of the history of film. He would have brought a lot to this in terms of like knowing what the hell was going on. If you're a Patreon supporter, go back to the uh, archives and listen to Adam talk with us about uh, a bunch of Buster Keaton movies. From December, uh, a those were so ago. good. That, or, that was the other exception. The boys yeah. thought those were very funny too. Like really, his aversion yeah. to aversion to uh, silent films. I don't or uh, to uh, black and white. I don't know where that's coming from. I'm not sure what film 
triggers that. It's like it's like you're a version to horror films. We we have a very specific understanding. It's actually very it's just very specific elements of certain specific. films. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But but described blanketly. I don't like black and white films. Well, I like this black and white film. This black and white film. I don't like silent right. films. I like this silent film. I like this silent film. Right. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, Your kid's just nuanced, man. Yeah. That little boy contains multiple. I got. I got to dig further into uh, it, though. We need. To, I'm gonna. I'm gonna narrow this down very specifically. Uh, eventually, uh, well, this Criterion well, Collection would do that for me, go. basically. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Well. Thank you so much for listening to Lost and Criterion. I'm as always Leon Glass. With me as always John Patrick Oyatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Overtory Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening. <laughs>